Section 21 of The Heroines of History. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Heroines of History by John S. Jenkins. Section 21. Josephine, Part 4. During all these excursions, Josephine manifested the utmost kindness and benevolence to every one who applied to her with a tale of distress. Her sensitive nature never permitted her to turn a deaf ear to misfortune or suffering, nor refuse her generous sympathy to the poor. While partaking of a casual repast, by the way, she was sure to offer a portion of it to the passer-by, however beggarly, often adding bounteous alms. Blessings were invoked upon her head wherever she went, and with just reason, for Josephine was a friend to the friendless, a mother to the orphans, and a benefactress to the unfortunate. For some time after the coronation the emperor and empress remained at St. Cloud. While there, Josephine usually rose at nine o'clock, spent an hour in making a toilette, enjoyed a walk or some other recreation, and breakfasted at eleven o'clock, when she was occasionally joined by the emperor, though he never remained above ten minutes at table, considering it lost time. She afterwards received petitioners, to all of whom she gave ready assistance. Retiring to her own apartments, the remainder of the morning was spent with the ladies of her suite, all of whom were engaged in embroidering, while one of their number read aloud from some entertaining and instructive author. Works of fiction were never permitted to be circulated in the palace, as Napoleon was strictly and severely opposed to that class of literature. He sometimes suddenly appeared in their midst, talking gaily and freely with the ladies of honor, and occasionally joining in a game of cards, but his stay was always short. He was often present when the evening toilet of the empress was in preparation, overturning her boxes in his impatience, tossing about the most costly jewels as if of no value, and frightening her attendants by his irritable criticisms. He did not scruple to destroy an elegant dress if it happened not to strike his fancy, obliging her to assume another, a needless interference inasmuch as she was always apparelled with exquisite taste. He dined with her at six o'clock, in company with their invited guests, who learned to appease their appetite before being seated at the lavishly supplied table, from which they were obliged to rise before the tempting viands had been scarcely tasted. The emperor remained but a few moments, and the empress and guests necessarily followed him. Thus the utmost amiability was essential to Josephine, to endure these petty tyrannies with an unruffled mien. An important and happy event called her to Munich at the close of the year. The marriage of Eugene with the princess of Bavaria, was magnificently celebrated there. It gave both the emperor and empress the utmost satisfaction, not only for politic reasons, but because their mutual attachment gave promise of domestic peace. All that Josephine had desired was now accomplished. Her fears and anxiety as to the emperor's idea of divorce were forgotten after the birth of a son to Hortense, now Queen of Holland. As the young Napoleon advanced to years of interesting childhood, he so won upon his uncle's affections that Bonaparte determined to make him heir to his immense dominions. Josephine's future peace depended upon his life. As though to mock the hope centered in the young prince, death marked him an early victim. He died in 1807, while Napoleon was engaged in the brilliant campaign of Austerlitz. Upon hearing the tidings, he repeatedly exclaimed, "'To whom shall I leave all this?' The event afflicted Josephine with a double grief. She not only mourned the loss of a favorite, but trembled under the stroke that threatened her own happiness. 
she knew perfectly well that the powerful conqueror would not hesitate to sacrifice her if she impeded his limitless designs, though he loved her with all the devotion of which his selfish nature was capable. Nearly a year passed before Napoleon made known to her his unalterable decision, but that year was full of inexpressible torture to Josephine. A private passage determined by a small door connected their apartments. At this the emperor was accustomed to knock when he desired an interview. These occasions, when the subject of divorce was discussed, became so painful to Josephine that the usual summons caused violent palpitation of the heart, trembling, and faintness. She could scarcely support herself, while hesitating at the door to gather strength and courage for interviews that inflicted almost unendurable anguish. The final decision was made known to her May 30th by Napoleon himself, after ordering the attendants to withdraw. Of this, she says, I watched in the changing expression of his countenance that struggle which was in his soul. At length his features settled into a stern resolve. I saw that my hour was come. His whole frame trembled. He approached, and I felt a shuddering horror come over me. He took my hand, placed it upon his heart, gazed upon me for a moment, then pronounced these fearful words. Josephine, my excellent Josephine, thou knowest if I have loved thee. To thee, to thee alone, do I owe the only moments of happiness which I have enjoyed in this world. Josephine, my destiny overmasters my will. My dearest affections must be silent before the interests of France. Say no more, I had still the strength to reply. I was prepared for this, but the blow is not the less mortal. More I could not utter. I became unconscious of everything, and on returning to my senses found I had been carried to my chamber. From this time to the 16th of December she was obliged to appear at the fetes and public rejoicings, incident to the anniversary of the coronation, with a smiling countenance and cheerful demeanor, while beneath it all her heart was breaking. Her decision was not formally announced to the public till the 16th of December, when the Council of State was summoned to appear at the Tuileries. Napoleon's family, who secretly exulted at the event, were also gathered at the Grand Saloon. A chair, in front of which stood a table with writing apparatus of gold, was placed in the centre of the apartment. At a little distance stood Eugene with compressed lips and his arms folded over a heart swelling with resentment. Josephine entered with her usual grace, pale but calm, leaning on the arm of Hortense, who conducted her to the central chair and stationed herself behind it, weeping bitterly. The Empress sat composedly with her head leaning on her hand, the tears coursing silently down her deathly pale cheek, listening to the reading of the act that was to separate her forever from the man for whom she would have laid down her life. Napoleon, in vain, endeavoured to suppress the emotion that betrayed itself in the violent workings of his countenance. It was the wrenching of a strong affection from a soul that was else all chaos and darkness. It was the obliteration of a guiding star that had led him to the topmost pinnacle of greatness, and without whose steady radiance he must blindly overstep his narrow foothold and plunge from the dizzy height. A solemn stillness rested upon the assemblage when the reading of the act ceased. Even the Bonaparte family were touched with Josephine's uncomplaining sorrow. She pressed her handkerchief to her eyes for an instant, then rising, took the oath of acceptance in a tremulous voice, resumed her seat, and taking the pen, signed the document. The dreaded ceremony finished, she immediately retired, accompanied by Hortense and Eugene, who fell senseless as he reached the antechamber. The silent witnessing of his mother's suffering was too much for him to endure, 
for her sake and in compliance with her entreaties, he had restrained his burning resentment. Josephine burst into an uncontrollable paroxysm of tears when she reached her private apartments, sobbing and groaning with an anguish heart-rending to behold. Carriages were in waiting to convey her to Malmaison. While preparations were making for her departure, Napoleon came to bid her a final farewell. As he approached, she threw herself in his arms, and clinging to him with a tenderness that conveyed more than words, the intensity and faithfulness of a love which nothing could tear from her heart. Overcome by her emotions, she fainted and was placed upon a couch, over which Napoleon hung with unconcealed anxiety and pain, tenderly stroking her cold face, and himself applying restoratives. Returning consciousness brought her more frantic grief when she perceived the emperor was no longer near her for he had hastily left the apartment, fearing another scene. She seized the hand of an officer who still remained, and in accents of wild sorrow entreated him to tell the emperor not to forget her. No one could restrain tears of sympathy for the beloved empress, so unjustly thrust from the affections of an adored husband. She was accompanied to Malmaison by persons of distinction, who continued to pay court to her, knowing they thus best secured the royal favour, though many followed her from pure love and sympathy. She still retained the title of empress, and received an ample revenue to support the expenses and incident to her rank. Malmaison was elegantly furnished and embellished with many costly articles sent her by Napoleon's orders. She here held her court, which was frequented by the savants of Paris as well as the gay and beautiful. Thus Malmaison once more became the scene of fêtes, balls, and splendid entertainments. These gaieties could not divert Josephine from her one greatest sorrow. Every object in that lovely retreat, where their earliest days of happiness had been spent, reminded her of what she had in vain tried to forget. Her tears flowed afresh at the sight of the haunts they had frequented together. The flowers that had given her so much delight now only recalled painful associations. The rooms which had been exclusively Napoleon's she would permit no one but herself to enter, retaining every article precisely as he had left it. The maps he had studied, the books with leaves turned down, his apparel just where he had flung it in some impatient mood. Everything remained undisturbed and sacred to her own eyes, already inflamed and almost sightless with continual weeping. What agonizing remembrances of happiness she must have endured in this silent, deserted apartment! What abandonment to grief, where every object recalled the loved face and voice of one lost to her forever, and where no curious eyes checked her tears. It was well for her health and repose that she finally determined to forsake Malmaison, and retire to the Chateau of Navarre, a palace that had lain nearly in ruins since the devastation of the Revolution, but which was charmingly situated in the midst of the forest of Evreux. It had originally been celebrated for its spacious park, elegant gardens, lakes, fountains, and all that could render it an envied possession. The occupation of restoring its original beauty, of giving employment to the poor peasantry in the neighborhood, as well as escaping the heartless attentions of courtiers and the wearisome gaieties of court, was a beneficial, wise change. Josephine was accompanied thither by her most intimate, valuable friends, and a few young ladies whose guardian she became. She was never forsaken, however, by the world, who testified the sincerity of its admiration by visits to this out-of-the-way home of the loved empress. 
Her mornings were passed in company with the ladies of her suite, engaged in some useful work, and listening at the same time to one who read aloud. The afternoons were occupied in rides, walks, or visits to the poor, who were constant objects of charity. The evenings were passed in the saloons in lively conversation, occasional games at cards, or listening to the music of the harp and piano in adjoining apartments, where the young people engaged in dances or noisy games, which, however they much disturbed the quiet of the saloons, Josephine would never allow to be checked, for she loved to see all around her cheerful and happy, even while her own heart was too sad for her face to brighten with a single smile. The news of the Emperor's marriage with the beautiful Maria Louise of Austria was a new pang to her already lacerated feelings. She could not conceal her grief on her first meeting with Napoleon after the event that deprived her of every claim upon his thoughts and affections. He often visited her, and evinced the lingering love and veneration he had entertained for her admirable character, by the entire confidence with which he unfolded all his plans to her. A correspondence sustained between them was her greatest pleasure. The birth of a son at St. Cloud was announced to Josephine, while attending a dinner given by the prefect at the city of Evreux. With no feeling of jealousy or envy, this noble woman added her congratulations and sincerely rejoiced with all of France at the accession of an heir to the throne. The only regret she expressed was that she had not first received the intelligence from Napoleon himself. When at length a letter arrived, communicating the tidings, she retired to read it and remained in seclusion an hour. When she returned to her guest, her face bore evident traces of tears. She longed to behold the young prince, a wish which Napoleon granted by himself placing the child in her arms, but which would have been refused by Maria Louise, who so disliked Josephine that she would ride miles out of her way rather than pass the resident of her rival in the emperor's affections. Bonaparte continued to confide his most secret plans to Josephine. When he imparted to her his designs upon Russia, she used her utmost persuasion to induce him to abandon the wild project, in which she dimly foresaw his ruin. During that frightful campaign their correspondence was continued without interruption. His letters to her were more frequent and more affectionate than ever, while hers, written by every opportunity, were perused under all circumstances with a promptitude which clearly showed the pleasure or consolation that was expected. In fact, it was observed that letters from Malmaison or Navarre were always torn rather than broken open, and were instantly read whatever else might be retarded. The news of his disasters filled Josephine with fearful apprehensions, more especially as the French had lost the blind enthusiasm with which they formerly worshipped their hero and were as ready to heap anathemas upon his name as they had before been eager to find superlatives with which to praise him. He returned to France with the shattered remains of his brilliant army, unwilling to believe her people would dare to conspire against the bold conqueror who challenged all the world to battle. Neither his self-confidence nor his giant grasp could retain the crown, lost in his vain reachings for another. It was too late now to retrace his steps. In a short and painful interview with Josephine he acknowledged that he might still have been Emperor of France had he regarded her faithful entreaties. This was the last time she ever beheld him. The revolution that soon succeeded alarmed her for his fate. Could she have flown to him when deserted by Maria Louise? Her grief would have been assuaged in imparting hope and consolation in his reverses, but she was obliged to wait in patient retirement widely separated from him the issue of events that threatened his freedom if not his life her own future was a secondary matter she scarcely knew what to expect from the allied sovereigns 
they will respect her who was the wife of napoleon said she and with truth though the honour and deference paid her was not because of her rank nor because her fame had been closely associated with the fearful hated yet strangely glorious name of napoleon bonaparte it was due alone to the world-wide admiration of her noble generous exalted character a message from the allied sovereigns expressed a desire to visit her at malmaison with which she immediately complied for the sake of her children whose honours and titles had vanished with the emperor's downfall on arriving at her beloved home she was deeply affected to find a guard of honour had been stationed there to protect her property from the pillage and destruction involved in a revolution like the devastation that marks the track of a whirlwind josephine was here visited by the emperor alexander with whom she pled for napoleon it was greatly owing to her influence and eloquence and a regard for her devoted attachment for napoleon that severe measures were not taken to crush or effectually pinion his ambitious spirit josephine was comparatively happy when it was at last announced to her that he was to possess in full sovereignty the principality of the island of elba an envied fate in contrast to the one she had feared upon his departure with the few who were still devoted to him she wrote a most affectionate and touching letter and would have followed him but for the delicacy of supplanting his rightful wife malmaison was again thronged with the great and gay who came now not with empty flattery but to assure the empress of the most profound esteem the emperor alexander on meeting her expressed his gratification thus madam i burned with the desire to behold you since i entered france i have never heard your name pronounced but with benedictions in the cottage and in the palace i have collected accounts of your goodness and I do myself a pleasure in thus presenting to your majesty the universal homage of which I am the bearer. She was also visited by the king of Prussia. Louis, the occupant of the throne of France, conferred flattering distinctions upon Eugene, and would have made him marshal of France, had his pride permitted him to accept the honour. Hortense was also received with marked favour. These monarchs, besides the most distinguished persons in Europe, frequently visited and dined at Malmaison, where Josephine gracefully did the honours. On the last occasion, May 19th, when a grand dinner was given to the allied sovereigns, she became too ill to remain with her guests. She left her duties with Hortense to perform, obliged at length to yield to a disease that for some time she had endeavoured to keep at bay. A malignant form of quinsy had fastened upon her, and despite the exertion of the most skilful physicians it made rapid and alarming progress. She articulated with much difficulty, she expressed affection for her children who remained constantly at her bedside by grateful and tender looks often smiling upon them while enduring the severest pain endeavouring to calm their agitation and lessen their anxiety a few days however so changed the beloved countenance of their mother that no hopes were entertained for her recovery she herself quickly recognised the hand of death in her last moments her thoughts wandered far away to elba longing for the presence of one whom even the near approach of eternity could drive from her heart. A portrait of Napoleon hung near, which she motioned to be brought to her and placed where she could gaze upon it, as if to number him who had forsaken her among the weeping ones gathered about her. Hortense and Eugene knelt at the bedside, overcome with grief, and sobbing painfully while they received her last blessing. At this moment the Emperor Alexander, who visited her daily, entered and was gratefully recognized by Josephine. She summoned all her remaining strength to say in a faint whisper, I shall die regretted. I have always desired the happiness of France. I did all in my power to contribute to it. I can say with truth 
that the first wife of Napoleon never caused a tear to flow. She died May 29, 1814, mourned, as she had said, not only by the French nation, but by all Europe. Princes testified their remembrance of her noble and eminent goodness by following her remains to the simple little church at Rouelle, which was covered with black drapery on the occasion of her funeral. No ornament or inscription decorated the walls, but the tears of the proudest sovereigns of Europe mingled with those of the poor of France to pronounce the funeral oration of the good Josephine. Her remains were afterwards placed in a beautiful tomb of white marble, upon which the empress is represented in a kneeling posture, as if praying for France. It gives no recital of her virtues, no enumeration of titles. The monument only bears the simple, touching inscription, Eugene and Hortense, to Josephine. Though crowned an empress, she never lost the sweetness and simplicity of character that belonged to her lively girlhood in the quiet at Martinique. Early disappointments and afflictions, so far from embittering her nature, served to chasten and fortify her spirit for the gentle endurance of sterner griefs. Great in prosperity, she was greater in adversity. She is an example of humane sympathy, of calm reason, of lofty magnanimity, thorough integrity and unfaltering devotion to the objects of her affection. She was one of the countless instances of womanly tenderness repeatedly sacrificed to worldly schemes of the base and crafty, and she is an illustrious evidence of the higher policy of a frank and straightforward rectitude. Hers was that simple wisdom of a true heart which transcends the most dazzling genius of man, and as one of earth's true souls she will enlist the warm admiration of all who have an earnestness akin to hers so long as the world endures. End of section 21